This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. It's great to be here with you while Libby takes some summer vacation time. Well, it's certainly not the first time we've heard an apology from Justin Trudeau while he's been our prime minister. He said sorry yesterday for failing to recuse himself from his government's decision to award a contract to We Charity to manage a $900 million student volunteering program during COVID-19. Trudeau's been a big supporter of We Charity over the years, and we also learned last week that both his mother and brother have been recipients of some $300,000 of combined speaking fees at We events in recent years. The We Charity controversy is now being investigated by the Ethics Commissioner, a third such scenario for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. So what do you think? Should this be excused given the prime minister's heavy workload and commitment during the COVID-19 crisis? Or is it three strikes and you're out? 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. First, though, let's get reaction from our crack strategy panel. John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road. Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Toronto Office of Earns Cliff Strategy Group. And Karen Stintz, former Toronto City Councillor and current CEO of Variety Village. Hello, panel. Hi, Jane. Hi, Jane. Hi, Jane. Karen, the controversy has widened since last Tuesday, uh, and there's also been an apology. Where do we go from here? Yeah, it certainly has. Uh, It it was a little eyebrow-raising to read about... um, the, the monetary benefits that his family received through the charity and the, uh, the for-profit uh, Mitawi uh, organization. And, um, you know, I, I don't think, I think the apology will be widely accepted by Canadians, but, but I do think that the Prime Minister needs to pay attention to decision-making moving forward. Um, and that we discussed that there was a wide degree of latitude by the public for the Prime Minister making decisions that were are really quite um, unprecedented uh, in our times in terms of um, measures that were taken to close uh, our economy down to to control the spread of the pandemic and then subsequent payments out to support Canadians. And moving forward uh, with a trillion dollar deficit, I I think that there will be um, a a requirement for the Prime Minister moving forward to to be a bit more diligent in how these decisions are being made. And, And I think that if he moves forward recognizing that, I think Canadians will be forgiving. John, your thoughts? It reminds me of the song, Jane, Sorry, Not Sorry, um, in, in that, you know, um, he's sorry, but, but is he really sorry in a sense that why didn't he say and apologize, you know, when it first became apparent that something, you know, foolish like, like you know, being caught with, with um, you know, giving money to an organization where your family was, was getting payments from. I think, you know, to Karen's point about apologies, and yeah, I think some Canadians will accept it, and I think it's better to apologize than not to apologize. And as we know, some political leaders, you know, in their careers never apologize, and they just refuse to apologize, and they just barrel forward 
uh, and hope that the subject changes and, and what have you. We've got a, a leader in, in Justin Trudeau who does the opposite, who tends to apologize a, a lot. Uh, and in some cases, apologizes, I think, after the fact, after we, as, as Jagmeet Singh says, after he's been caught. And I think that level of apology sometimes rings hollow with with the Canadians. And I think we're sort of seeing that uh, initially with this Angus Reid poll that shows a bit of a dip in his popularity, albeit early days uh, in this particular scandal. But but yet a five-point drop in, in his popularity just over the last week or so. Uh, so I think this thing has some legs, and, and, and apologizing is important, but it's also the timing of it. Uh, and then to have, you know, the, the finance minister who... I think also said that there was a perceived conflict with respect to his daughter working mm-hmm. for we uh, in coming up with a tweet literally an hour after the prime minister apologized. Uh, you know, the reporters, I thought, had it right when they asked him the question, how many times do you have to apologize before Canadians start believing or start not believing in your apologies? And that's, I think, the, the challenge that this prime minister faces. Charles, uh, what about you? And you are a strategist for the Liberals. Is this is this the Prime Minister's personality speaking, or is this was this the right thing to do to say I'm sorry once again? Uh, I think this was a screw up of the first order. I mean, if it were any more of a dog, it would have fleas. Um, it is uh, the kind of situation that no government wants to face. Obviously, the decision was well-intentioned but ill-conceived to um, essentially put out um, $900 plus million in, in taxpayers' money to an organization that has come under withering scrutiny over uh, recent days with regards to um, its charitable practices and its for-profit for arm um, from me to we. And, uh, you know, I think... W- w- First off, it's July, so there's a lot of people who are just dialed out and really not watching. Second, Stephen Harper never apologized for anything, so I think most Canadians find it refreshing that we actually have a prime minister who's willing to admit his faults. But this is a pretty serious episode. I mean, you have um, uh, the federal civil service coming forward with a recommendation that was clearly uh, not a good piece of advice. You have a prime minister who is unaware that uh, family members were had, that the dollar amounts that family members had received, and I think it's just another casualty of COVID. In as much as a lot of decisions were taken very quickly without adequate foresight, I will say in classic fashion, Andrew Shear came out and said, "Oh, it's criminal activity." And then Pierre Poilev, uh, the conservative finance critic, came out and said that, that Trudeau is a dictator. And it just speaks to classic overreach. And as I've said many, many times before, the best thing Pierre Trudeau, uh, Justin Trudeau has going for him is the fact that conservatives hate him so much because it just used their judgment each and every time. Although, Karen, you know, in a relationship, if people... If one of the partners is always saying sorry, but they're never changing their behavior, mm-hmm. that gets tiring, right, for the for the other person in the relationship. And in this case, it's the prime minister and his relationship with us, the residents, the citizens of this country. I mean, how many times do we hear that he's sorry, but yet he seems to get himself into this kind of trouble where I think most intelligent people would think, oh, wait a minute, we charity, my family, me, my wife, um, I, I need to leave the room for this conversation. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I think it was it's, it's interesting to hear Charles reflect on the fact that the prime minister uh, frequents apologies. I mean, there was a time he was apologizing for every historical sin that Canada has committed. 
like he was apologizing to each group about everything. But then when it comes to his own conduct, there is actually a reticence to apologize because he doesn't think he's done anything wrong. And so, you know, in this case, I, I find it hard to believe he didn't know his mother made $250,000. That's a lot of money. I find it hard to believe he wasn't aware of that payment. And his wife had been paid, his uh, brother had been paid, and he's good friends with the owners. And so if, if this apology, it came because he realized he had to make it, 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 but it was forced to be made. And it was the same thing with SNC-Lavalin. He didn't come out and apologize for what his government was doing. He justified it under the grounds he was trying to protect jobs. Here, he's justified it under the grounds it was a good program, well-intentioned. But, you know, again, I think that the proof is how he moves forward. Whether his apology is going to be accepted will depend greatly on how he conducts himself moving forward in terms of handing out um, money and benefits and programs and Mm decision-making. And then I think that's really where the test will come. And to John's point, he's had a a dip that may be temporary. Whether it becomes a permanent dip will, will be... And again, to your point, Jane, whether the relationship changes, because good intentions don't always make for good policy and good decisions. So let's get some good decisions being made with the transparency that was promised to Canadians. John, and uh, I want to get to our listeners as well. The phone lines are uh, lighting up here. It wasn't too long ago. I mean, everything pre-pandemic in some ways feels like a long time ago, but there were so many apologies last fall with regards to blackface and brownface in the past. So that's the first thing I thought of yesterday was, wasn't he just apologizing constantly through that whole election campaign? And, and specifically, and in, in particular, regarding the, the blackface uh, fiasco and, and in his apology, in fact, he had to make two apologies because the first one that he that he did, if you remember, Jane, on the plane um, was uh, what didn't particularly or at least fell flat with Canadians and then did a second one. Um, on a, on a tour which was a bit more received, well received with with Canadians, um, and but you know not not least of which the, that particular apology. But you've got the Aga Khan issue, uh, and you've got the SNC Lavalin issues you mentioned. But both of those issues, if you recall, he fought and defended and said they were the right things to do and and whatever. And it wasn't until you know the media really pounded him on it and sort of you know when they realized that it wasn't a one day or a two day story that it was actually had some legs from a media perspective then he's decided to apologize um, and, in, and in both those cases, the SNC Lavalin and the Aga Khan, there were ethics commission uh, investigations, as is the case with this one now. So, you know, this is a prime minister now that has gone through three or be, will be going to his third ethics commission or ethics uh, probe and investigation, has apologized after the fact. Um, and, you know, it, it does get it does bear, you know, some level of, of responsibility to him and, and others to, to say, is this, a, is this a narrative? Is this something that is just going to be a perpetual problem with this prime minister? And the only challenge he's got now that he didn't have before is he's in a minority government. And now you've got all three opposition, uh, essentially four, all, all the opposition, essentially with one voice on this. Uh, you know, you've got the leader of the Bloc Quebecois basically saying that he should step down and allow Minister Freeland to take over. You know, you've got the Conservatives, as Charles said, who are asking for a criminal probe on this to see if there are, or were any criminal activities that might have happened. So that's the challenge with the Prime Minister. He's, he's in a minority government, and you've got the opposition now all with one voice on this. So he's got to tread very carefully. 
I think there's a lot that Justin Trudeau has done very well during the pandemic. Uh, Charles, your rebuttal to this this latest incident, which unfortunately for him is coloring all of the good work that he's done. I mean, the good work of giving out our money, right? No, a very interesting point, Jane. And, and you know, if, if you're the average Canadian and you're weighing the question of, you know, was Justin Trudeau's apology appropriate versus the question is of, is my family safe from COVID? I mean, there's no comparison there in terms of the, the relative importance of those things. And, and Canadians are smart enough to recognize that, you know, in terms of what really matters to their lives, they have other priorities at the moment. And again, the timing. I, I will say, um, John makes an interesting point about the opposition parties. You also have to remember the governing party and all those liberal MPs in Ottawa who are looking at this and thinking, Lord, what is going on here? I mean, who is who is minding the store? I mean, were there not people in the prime minister's office who were uh, a lot more diligent about the kind of uh, disaster we were walking into. I mean, the only good thing that can be said is that that we we reverse course in very very short order and tried to get out of it and and, and minimize what was effectively a self inflicted wound uh, in terms of action. So I I don't mean to make light of of what has happened. I mean it's serious and it points to some serious shortcomings. Sure, you can explain it away by saying it's COVID and we've spent so much money trying to address the problems that are out there as a result of the pandemic. And we were trying to find young people jobs for the summer. But, you know, at some level, it, it's a systemic problem. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. Jane for Libby and our strategy panelists, John Capobianco, Charles Bird, and Karen Stintz. And now to your phone calls. Let's go to Alex in Toronto. Alex, what would you like to add? Hi, good afternoon. Okay, what I wanted to say is, first of all, I'm fed up with him, but uh, he seems to operate under the principle that I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And it's, you know what, it's better to ask for forgiveness later if I get caught than to ask permission before. Um, in the long run, I don't think this is going to hurt him at all because there is no end of apologists who will line up for him. And I've, there's already false equivalency starting. Um, you know, you go off on a tangent. Well, uh, you know, Brian Mulroney never apologized. I think Canadians are smart enough to see what a big difference between this. It's it's never going to end. I think he's uh, even with a minority government, he's gonna he's gonna weather this because the people involved, especially him, to them it's not real money. It's only tax money. I mean, it's you know what's the big deal? All right, Alex, I'll, I'll get uh, some comment here from our strategy panelists, uh, Karen Stintz. What about that? Uh, Trudeau apologizes. Other prime ministers have done. S- in some cases worse and don't apologize? Is it just the nature of being the prime minister or being the leader of of a G7 nation? Well, yeah, everyone's human. And uh, sometimes you make mistakes. And sometimes, uh, you know, depending on what else is going on, they become mistakes that end careers. This one, I don't think will end his career. Um, But I, again, but but I do think, and what we've talked about is that he's got to recognize that he's not, um, that the landscape is changing, and that he used to have the full the full command of the podium and the press and the the the, the goodwill of the public, and that can shift pretty quickly. And I, I think that there needs to be an awareness within his office and within his own administration and himself that it is our money, and a trillion dollars is a lot of money, <laughs> and that's going to be paid for by my grandkids. 
And so, yes, I'm feeling relatively safe around COVID, but the levels of anxiety around the economy, I think, are being widely felt. And it, it handing out, you know, the handing out our money, um, I, I think, is going to reach a point where it won't be as well received unless there's some structure and rigor and transparency around it. This is the first time our strategy panelists have been with us since that economic snapshot was delivered by the finance minister last Wednesday. Uh, John Capobianco, your thoughts on the projected deficit of $343 billion? Well, it's it's historic. If it wasn't for the fact that we've had similar ones after the uh, the First World War, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it just it's outstanding. But again, I think that, uh, and I've been very you know supportive and, and very complimentary to the Prime Minister uh, over the course of the of the COVID of the pandemic, as far as how he's been handling things and how he handled issues and and, and the fact that he uh, to to the speed by which he was providing programs. So I think, and even the opposition say that, you know, from that perspective, they've been supportive and, and helping out where they can. I think the issue here is is Canadians are, by and large, reserved to the fact that, yes, we had to spend a lot of money. We had to do what we did to sort of save jobs, save the economy in some way, shape or form. Um, and, you know, and we're seeing now, even in the polls, that some Canadians are split with respect to do we carry on with these programs? Yes. Uh, and how far do we go with these programs? Because I think the deficit number is so high that there's an acceptability that we had to get in there, we had to do what we had to do to get to get ourselves out through this pandemic. But now the question is, what's next? And how do we resolve it? And how do we get ourselves out of it? And I think the opposition uh, are right to start questioning that. You know, it, it, what you're seeing is the fact that there's a lot of shock and, and dismay as far as the numbers. But more importantly, they're, they're shocked and dismayed at the fact that there's not a sort of a plan for recovery. And I think that'll be the next issue that'll be facing this prime minister and this government. Charles, what about that? I mean, certainly the, the, the deficit projection of $343 billion is affecting us positively in the short term. It's saving a lot of Canadians uh, from financial woes and businesses with the wage subsidy now being extended until December. But what about that long-term recovery? Well, the first thing I would note is that um, and, and John will know this well. Other G7 nations are actually spending more and in much more dire straits with regards to debt to GDP ratios. The British come to mind very quickly in that regard. So Canada is not doing badly in comparison to other G7 nations at all. That said, I mean, it's a staggering amount of money that we have spent. Um, combating the pandemic. And the other problem with a plan going forward, and as I keep noting, I mean, we do not know where this thing will be in three months' time, in six months' time, in a year's time, whether the development of a vaccine is even possible. I mean, there are so many unanswered questions that carry with them not only huge healthcare implications, but massive economic implications as well. And we have literally just got to move forward step by step and try to cope with circumstances as they present themselves. I'm reminded of uh, British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan was once asked, you know, what's the toughest part of governing? And he replied to the reporter, events, dear boy, events. Uh-huh. And we just don't know what's coming. And and that is a big, big part of the problem. And one of the reasons the government is so adamant about you know, avoiding crystal ball gazing, casting the economic update as exactly what it was, which was a snapshot, because everything could be massively different three, four, six months from now. What about the recovery planning and coming up with some details on that in light of what you've just been saying? What what should the timeline be for this plan? 
Well, it's actively under it's actively underway, and um, this is this is a bit of inside baseball. But when the government was first coping with the immediate impacts of um, COVID and implications for healthcare, implications for jobs and people's economic well-being, it made a very very smart strategic decision, and that's and it's something that hasn't been much talked about, which is the center, which is the prime minister. Uh, the Prime Minister's office, um, and to some extent the, the Department of Finance, were charged with dealing with the short-term implications of the crisis, which is to say we've got a problem that needs fixing now, the equivalent of a house being on fire. You don't worry about what the ashes or what the frame is going to look like when the fire is out. you got to put out the fire. But other federal departments and agencies were charged with beginning to develop longer-term plans, and this was a process that started in March. And so we are actually going to be fairly well positioned to come forward with an economic plan. And I suspect you'll see that in the fall. And just given where our finances are at, I won't be surprised at all if we actually see a budget in the fall, that the government chooses not to wait to the traditional March-April time frame. But we might actually see something in the fall. Let's go to Brian and Mimico. Uh, we'll let you have the final word here on Trudeau before I get the strategy panelists' uh, impression of the of the stage three movement that Premier Ford has undertaken. Go ahead, Brian. Well, as I'm sure Papa told him, all you have to do is look good, be entertaining, you'll get away with anything and everything. Oh, did I do that? I'm sorry. Who wants a <laughs> selfie? It's pathetic. But Canadians allow this smooth-talking actor to get away with. Thank you, Brian. Uh, Karen, that is certainly for those people who don't like Justin Trudeau. I mean, that they hearken back to the days of Pierre Trudeau, who was actually a brilliant man. Mm -hmm. Um, And they seem to put the Trudeaus in the same camp is that they're actors. They're not insincere, empathetic, and they spend too much of our money. Mm -hmm. Yes. That that is, I think, if you don't, you know, just as uh, Charles said, if you know the conservatives don't like Trudeau, and that's what they will fall back on. If you don't like Trudeau, then then that's what you're going to pull from. Okay, we only have a couple of minutes here left, uh, strategy panelists. Uh, let's talk about stage three and how it's being handled by Premier Doug Ford. John, you go ahead. <clears throat> oh, I think he's doing the right thing. I think how he's been approaching this from the very beginning uh, has been has been just methodical. It's been listening to science and health uh, authorities, and he's been conducting and making decisions based on that. And we, I think we've seen uh, a significant um, improvement in testing uh, in the results. And I think the phase three opening, which which is, again, staggered and, and regionalized, is a smart way to go. Uh, and I think it proved well and successful for phase two, and I think it'll be the same for phase three. Charles, what do you think about the move to stage three, at least for um, most of the province? I think I think it's it's being done correctly. I think there's a high level of concern within um, the government and, in fact, governments across the country and in Ottawa that this virus has a mind of its own and that it could it could flare up very quickly. And all you have to do is look at what's happening in in the the southern United States and the so-called Sun Belt, where um, you know Florida is just on fire at the moment. They're they're pushing twenty thousand new infections a day, which is just a staggering, staggering number. And you also look at the extent to which you know uh, 
masks and, and now schools have been politicized by the Republicans and and um you just thank goodness our political leaders were so quick to come together and decide that there that there was no there was no room for politicking here and for and for cheap gains that we were all going to work together and I think the results speak for themselves and full credit to Premier Ford to, for taking the go slow approach to reopening. Karen, you have the final say. Go yeah, ahead. Thank you. Thanks, Jen. Yeah, I, I think everything um, is, is working as we expected in terms of stage three, although uh, I, I do think we need to get a strategy for school reopening in September that's a little more nailed down than the one they're uh, suggesting at present because uh, getting the kids back to school is really, really important for all kinds of reasons, uh, not least uh, at w- for which is helping parents actually get back to work. And so I think that there still needs to be some more discussion on the schools, and I look forward to seeing some of that take place over the next couple of weeks. Thank you all for your time. We'll talk to you next Tuesday. Thank you, Jane. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Jane. John Capabianco, Senior Vice President, Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Charles Bird from Ernst Cliff Strategy Group here in Toronto, and Karen Stins, former Toronto City Councilor and current CEO of Variety Village. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.